Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Hi, my name's Howard. It's my privilege to be the lead pastor of Westminster Chapel. Today we are examining a very important topic in perhaps one of, if not the most difficult to understand chapters in the whole 66 book canon that we call the Bible. If you are new to us as a church, you're so welcome. We're in a series, it's called Victory Is Now Here. That's what we believe is the outworking, the teaching of the sixth century book of Daniel we're studying together, which is all about how can you hold on to hope when life isn't dope, when you know circumstances around you are, are discouraging and disappointing and hard. And I think that is how not just most, but all of us have felt at moments over the last four months through the coronavirus crisis. It's been like a, a pressure cooker you know, that we've all been through, the uncertainty, the trials, the challenges, uh, and it's, it's brought up stuff from the surface that we're struggling to work out. The stuff inside us is responding to the circumstances outside us, and we need a new perspective on both. And that's what you can get through Daniel chapter 8. Chronologically, it actually comes before Daniel chapter 5 and after Daniel chapter 7. In fact, it is more like the unpacking and, and fleshing out of Daniel chapter 7 in some aspects, and the two visions there are joined together very clearly through the first verse, or the last part of that first verse. It's the third year of King Belshazzar's rule. He is the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. The first four books of the book of Daniel are about Nebuchadnezzar. And this young upstart king, he's arrogant. It's all about himself making a name for himself. And so what is one of the things he does? He demotes, unfairly demotes Daniel, who's been this brilliant administrative prime minister serving in Babylon, really helping them. But instead, he kind of puts him down in the figurative basement to do work that is well beneath him. Worse than that, Belshazzar is dismantling all of the good work that Daniel has been doing, seeking to bring God's righteousness into a realm of wickedness. So question. How do you keep going when it feels like the rug has been pulled from under your feet? How do you keep going when you feel forgotten by others, even God himself? How do you react? What do you like when you get, say, passed over for a promotion at work or even for a position in the church? How do you respond to rejection or being dumped? What do you like when it feels like you've been waiting for ages and God is still just silent? I think this is a little bit of what Daniel would have experienced. I call this the sort of the silent years, the silent time. And actually, the people of God were going to go on to experience about 400 years of them, a little bit different to Daniel's because God would stop speaking through his prophets 
And I'm going to be challenging years from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New with the arrival of John the Baptist. How would they keep going through such times? I believe it's because God had already spoken to them. He wasn't silent. He had planned for that time. They were to go and meditate on chapters like Daniel chapter 8 to understand what God is doing in those times and find a sense of hope. This chapter is hard, but it is hope-filled. It is designed to help you to stand firm. Standing, or the word stand, is repeated 12 times in this chapter alone. That's significant. It is the most repeated word. God has given this chapter for the people of that generation, but also very clearly for the generations to follow, to help us to keep going, to be faithful, to stand firm. And if you look right at the end of the chapter, verse 27, that's what Daniel does. That's what he does. It's amazing. He goes about the king's business again. Wow, seriously? This crazy, idiotic, unimpressive king? Yeah, he just gets on serving him. In menial stuff beneath him? Yes, Yes, he does that. How does he do that? Because he knows that by serving Belshazzar, he's worshipping God. God is in control and God has a plan. So he's just going to keep going. Knowing that those Daniel chapter 5 moments are going to come. So I want to make to you three points today. The first of those is that seeing the future will help you serve in the present and we're going to have the first part of the bible reading now in the third year of the reign of king belshazzar a vision appeared to me daniel after that which appeared to me at the first and i saw in the vision and when i saw i was in the Susa, the citadel which is in the province of elam and i saw in the vision and i was at the ulai canal i raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal it had two horns and both horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And I saw... When I saw, and I saw, I raised my eyes and saw. In the first three verses, we're getting a very strong sense that seeing is important. And what did Daniel need to see? God knew that he needed to see the victory of God over the Babylonian Empire, their destruction that would bring about God's people's liberation and their return home to the promised land. How was Daniel able to see? Because he was available, because he was looking, because he was seeking. I mean, he was praying, 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 praying three times a day towards Jerusalem, seeking to see God's kingdom coming, uh, long awaiting it. One of the reasons why we can't see clearly, why you can't see clearly, is because you're either looking in 
the wrong direction and or you're looking at the wrong things. We get so focused, don't we, on earthly, worldly things like, you know, who am I meant to marry? Uh, uh, what's my next career move, my, my job and all that kind of stuff? And uh, uh, how do I save for a great retirement plan and researching my next great holiday? We get they absorb and consume us. We get so fixated by the temporal instead of being transfixed by the eternal. It's said of the people of old, Christians of old, that they were so heavenly minded, they were of often little earthly good. That's completely reversed today. It's that we're so earthly minded that we are of little heavenly good on the earth for the glory of God. God is challenging us to change that today. God wants you to see and to know that he is in control and all of history is working to culminate in his ultimate victory. King Belshazzar, this tyrant king, the Babylonian Empire, they are going down. God has raised up a ram from Persia and the Medo-Persian Empire, this two-horned ram. And the, the larger horn, the Persians, is going to grow up to dominate. So it becomes more known as the Persian Empire. And that's going to bring an end to the 70 years of exile of the people of God who will get sent back by this decree that's written on the Cyrus cylinder that they can be returned home. And all the prophecies that showed that, that Daniel knew that that was coming, that Babylonians, Babylon's destruction would result in God's people's liberation from Jeremiah, Isaiah and Ezekiel. He knew hope was coming because of the future, because of seeing and understanding the future that was God was now showing him in more detail through this vision. What about you? The future that you should be able to see clearly is the second coming of Jesus. We should be living with that at the forefront of our minds all the time because that could happen at any moment. Yes, there might be signs of that day coming, yes, but also it should come like a thief in the night when we don't necessarily expect it. It could come at any moment and we should live in an eager anticipation of that. I tell you, the whole world is groaning in travail, awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, the glorification of the sons and daughters of God to be made known. God is coming. Jesus is going to come on the clouds in glory. He's going to undo all of the evil and the sin and the suffering and the sickness. He's going to cleanse out this world from all of the darkness and destroy it with his powerful light. He's going to glorify everything. It's going to be amazing and wonderful. And by faith in Jesus, you get to enjoy it forever with a glorified body that will never run or let you down again. Wow. Wow. Do you start to get hold of that? vision of the future, this very real reality, I tell you, it will drive away fear. Faith in that future that comes from God through seeing it in the scriptures will drive away fear. See, the pre-incarnate Christ, before his first coming, if you like, in fleshly form in a manger, he's pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. And in verse 16, there's the strong suggestion here that he is over or between the banks, 
over, that he's ruling from his throne in heaven over the Ulai Canal, over the river of history, showing his his power over it all, giving commands to mighty angels like Gabriel to do his bidding, to ensure that everything is happening in accordance with his great plan. It's showing us God is in control. God sends Daniel an angel, Gabriel, to help him to see. But he's done so much more to help you to see. <sighs> to help you to see, he sends you himself, the third person of the Trinity, to illumine and interpret what he's written in scripture to help you to understand it so you can face the future with hope and confidence. If though, if we will ask for it, if we are humble enough, if you're humble enough to really, really pray and, and seek God's spirit, his presence, especially as you read the Bible, it's easy to forget, isn't it, just to go through the motions or pick up your Bible and read or just sort of pray a non-heartfelt prayer. But I think it's really important that we ask God, we have the humility, God, I, I need your help to understand, to help me to do that. When I write my journals, I tend to write at the start of each journal a, a prayer. It's from a, a hymn written by Mary Lathbury in 1877. It's this, oh, send thy spirit, Lord, now unto me that he may touch mine eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed in thy word and in thy book revealed, I see the Lord. God has graciously, in abundance, given you the Holy Spirit so that as you read the scriptures, you might be able to understand what they say about the future. And in understanding the future, you will be able to stand firm in the present. That's the first point. The second point is trusting that more is going on than you can comprehend will help you to hold on to hope. Here's the second Bible reading. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. God is at work, even when it seems like he is silent. The proud Persian ram has grown corrupt and arrogant and needs to be judged. And so God raises up the Greek empire, led by Alexander the Great, the first horn to destroy it. What seemed undefeatable is now destroyed and defeated by another what seems like an undefeatable kingdom coming, Greece, so powerful under Alexander the Great. But then Alexander the Great himself seems to grow corrupt, too powerful and needs to be judged himself. He dies aged 33. 
And the kingdom of Greece is broken up into four weaker regions. These animal depictions sometimes seem a little bit odd, don't they? Until you remember, though, that America is often talked about as an eagle or that there are three lions on an England football shirt. God knew that extraordinarily Greece would become like associated with the goat. We've got clues about that, that the Aegean Sea is said to mean sea goat. And even today, it's just quite extraordinary that Greece has the highest number of goats per capita in all of Europe. I mean, this is, this is hard to fathom. Are you getting this? 200 years before it's happening, God is speaking to Daniel about an empire that's going to come. It doesn't right now even really exist. And it's going to come and be built and associated with the goats become like its mascot theme. Wow. Wow. God is in control. But there's more. There's more. See, maybe you knew all of that. But hey, I tell you, I didn't know this, that Josephus, the historian in AD 94, Josephus is a very trusted historian. He writes in AD 94, a great treatise histories of the Jewish people. He's not really a full friend to the Jewish people. He becomes more of a Roman sympathizer. He's certainly hostile towards Christians. And he, in his, in his writings, describes when Alexander the Great and his army are coming to Jerusalem. They haven't yet totally defeated the Persians. And the people of God are still in allegiance with the Persians because that's kind of that, that, that's been their history. They got released by the Persians to go back into the promised land and to rebuild and so forth. But Alexander wants their allegiance. He's angry at them. He's coming to plunder. He's coming to torment, certainly kill the high priest and so forth. But the people of God, they know Daniel chapter eight. Maybe it was sealed up, verse 26, for such a time as this, that they would be ready. And so God speaks to the high priest in a vision and he tells him, don't don't kind of try and defend yourself. I tell you, open up the city, God says, get everybody wearing white and you are to wear your your normal full priestly clothes, those purple clothes, that habit. Alexander and the army, they come. But Alex sees this vision, the city open before him white and then the purple high priest. And he breaks rank and he walks forward and it says, says he adores the name of God and salutes the high priest. Now, his generals around him are like, what are you doing? This is this is not what we had planned to do. And Daniel, recorded by Josephus, says this. I did not adore him, but that God who hath honoured him with his high priesthood, for I saw this very person in a dream. In this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain dominion over Asia, he exhorted me without delay to boldly go forward, that he would conduct my army and he would give me dominion over the Persians. Wow. Wow. God is God is unbelievably in control, giving dreams and visions. I mean, why shouldn't we expect that? He gave a vision, a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Of course he could give a dream to another leader. He's shaping history to serve his purposes. So what exactly is God doing here? Why raise up the Persians? Well, so that the Persians would come and have a different policy and approach to the Babylonians and how they rule. Babylonians rule by assimilation. The Persians were sent back and rule from a distance. 
It allows for the release of the people of God to go and to rebuild so that when Jesus comes, he can walk in the temple precincts and fulfill the Mosaic law. What about the Greeks? The Greeks are going to come. They're going to this massive empire that they're going to build and establish, but which will all speak the common Greek Koine language. Common language to all. So that when Jesus comes, that his words can be written down, recorded in that language that everybody will know so it can spread far and wide, which wasn't possible before then. Gosh, God is shaping all of history because it's his story to bring about the victory that he's going to do through Jesus Christ. Wow. 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 Are you are you trusting God that even now he's working right now to do more good than you might be able to comprehend? Can you trust him in his sovereignty? That's the second point. The third point is about savouring. Savouring the, the length of God's love. Just how far he will go in order to defeat the depths of human sin. Seeing that, savouring that will help you to stand firm. Here's the third and final Bible reading. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it. Together with the regular burnt offering. Because of transgression. And it will throw through it to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men, and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The little horn here is a counterfeit anointed one. 
or an anti-Christ, and instead of Christ, and against God and Christ and all that he's seeking to do. And he starts small, little horn, just as Satan and sin starts small in scripture with just four words. Did God really say that would grow massive to infect all of humanity? Notice the attack here upon the truth to trample it down. Which is what Romans 1 would say is ultimately sin is a suppression of the truth about God. But it's not just the truth about God also that gets suppressed. It's the truth about his ways in this world. And that's not just happening back then. It's happening right now in our society. The truth about marriage, the truth about gender, the truth about when life begins, all being trampled down to the ground. The person in view here is Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes from the Syrian Seleucid part of the line of the breakup of Alexander's kingdom. He is the Hitler of the Old Testament. He sees himself as the incarnation of Zeus. He is a crazy, power-hungry king and he wants to Greekify or Hellenize the people of God referred to here as being from verse 10, the glorious land. Now this takes me back to the beginning of the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 1, to that poetic chiastic structure that I mentioned that has within it the central point of a test. And this is the test that runs throughout the book, which runs throughout the challenge for the people of God and for us today. Will we, will you set apart God as first place in your heart or will you assimilate to the surrounding culture? That's the challenge. Think though of even how top apostle Peter himself backslides in this. Acts chapter 10, he's given this amazing dream that, that Gentiles are unclean, that changes everything from the past, the way he's kind of thought and operated, that God wants to reach and rescue Gentiles, beginning with Cornelius. You're to go to him and his household. But in Galatians chapter 2, we read about him backsliding to racist sectarianism again he stops eating just with the gentiles the jews have got oh, i'm going to just eat with the jews again they're my kind my people <gasps> he's become assimilated see this is the point that we want to be in the world but not of the world not shaped by the wrong values this really comes to a head in how you use steward give away your time talents and treasures which ultimately aren't yours. They're given to you by God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father. You don't own them. You didn't make them. They're, they're gifts of yours. Even your ability to make money, that comes from God. And it's whether you're going to do that with what, in line with what God would say and his truth would say, or whether you're going to do it and just set it by the temperature of the culture around you, the temperature of what people do in society or in church. I'll just do it the same as them or do it a little bit better. No, I want to live the counter-cultural way of the kingdom of God. That is the challenge for us. Antiochus, though, wasn't only fueled by human power. Verse 24, it wasn't just a human power, he was demonically inspired. So he comes to Jerusalem to take away the temple vessels and the artifacts, to kill thousands, including uncircumcised babies, to devote the temple to, to Zeus, and then to sacrifice in the temple a pig, the ultimate kind of image of uncleanness to be there in that place, in the most holy place. It's just, ah, oh, so wrong. That's why it's referred to in Matthew chapter 24 in this biography about Jesus. 
Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. What is God doing? God removes his protective hand from his people so they can face the consequences of sin. They had not just been in the world, they'd become of the world. They had massively compromised. They pushed God away. And so now God withdrew and he hands them over to their own sin, which is coming up through Antiochus Epiphanes. Yes, God is in control, but this man is making his own decisions himself to be evil and corrupt. And there is spiritual warfare using him against the purposes of God. But God is in this disciplining those he loves by handing them over to their sin in order to awaken zeal. And they should have known better. It's not like they hadn't been warned. The 10 northern tribes of Israel, 722 BC, for their horrible crimes of injustice, let alone what wrong they've done to God, they are judged and exiled and they are no more. Lost as they were before, at least, in those clearly defined tribal structures. And then in 586 BC, because the people of God didn't learn, God has to judge again and exile them. And the Babylonians come. And now here we have the book of 1 Maccabees. It's not an inspired book of the Bible, but it's a good historical book. It says this, of this time that's going on, that's being described in this moment under Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. He says, in those days there appeared in Israel transgressors of the law who seduced many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles. They disguised their circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant and allied themselves with Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. This just shows us the myth of human progress. That for both these nations outside of the people of God that are just going round and round. You know, it's the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, just going round and round. There's no real kind of progress that's happening. It's the same stuff. Pride, corruption needs to be... Oh, and the same for the people of God. They're going round in the sin. They... <laughs> It really interests me that even atheist John Gray, he says this. Let me quote it exactly. Human impulses are not naturally benign, peaceable or reasonable. The myth of human progress. The only reason for progress and for things not cycling constantly into despairing destruction is because God is taking history somewhere. I've mentioned it already. He's shaping history for his purposes, for the glorification of Jesus Christ and for the renewal of all things, the new heaven and earth. That is God's goal. That's what God is doing. You see, there are cycles as well of, of sin, not just in the national level, but in the, the human family level as well. I don't want to talk about them. People sometimes think there's demonic curses, but there's just there's nature cycles through genetics being passed on that gives you a propensity to sin in certain ways, but doesn't remove your responsibility to say for anger and things like that. But more importantly, there's also nurture, nurture that the sins of families and the ways that families may be sinned against and then react sinfully because of the, 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 the horrors that have been done to them that can create bad environments for us to grow up in as, as children, that you're raised in this atmosphere which shapes you in certain ways. And it's very hard not to allow that to carry you on in another cycle in some way. 
And I want to encourage you to explore that to see how much that stuff has affected you in order to bring all the wealth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to destroy it. You see, in Christ, sin is defeated. We are positionally righteous through faith in Jesus. But we don't become practically righteous. That's our obedience in response to him. And so sin can remain on in us. It's very deep. It goes like a dandelion tap root down. You kind of never almost feel like you get to the bottom of it. It starts small, but it goes deep. Your individualistic desire to do what you want, to think that you know better than God and his under shepherds, church pastors and leaders. And this cinder of sin, it remains on even in the unbeliever. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't deal with sin as rebellion against God in all sorts of ways, then it's going to catch fire and it's going to burn up all the good that God wants to do in your life. The Puritan John Owen put it like this. He said, be killing sin or it be killing you. Wow. Because sin is deep, killing it is a lifelong process. So often our kids, when we go away on trips, like two hour journeys or things like that, they will say, I mean, one of them says it within five minutes of, of just beginning the journey. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I think some of us are a bit like that with sin. We expect easy, quick fixes. Are we there yet? Why haven't I got there yet? All that kind of stuff. It's a lifelong process. Sin goes deep, but I tell you, God's love is longer. God's love is longer to deal with it. This is what I think God is trying to teach Daniel. He's trying to show him how deep sin is. It can't just be got rid of through one cycle, just through one. 70 years done, dealt with backwards. No, this is so deep that it needs really pulling up from the roots. It needs a saviour. It needs Jesus. But I wonder in verse 27, if this helps us understand quite why Daniel is so appalled. Is he appalled? Because God has to judge his people again, that they haven't learned all this time in exile. They still haven't learned to put God first, to die to sin. Wow. We should be appalled at sin, but because we're appalled at sin, we should be amazed at our God and the lengths he will go to despite their, our unfaithfulness to deal with sin. But are you appalled at sin? Are you rightly angered by the way that we give sin the power to reign over us when through faith in Jesus we have the power not to sin? Are you taking sin seriously? Are you seeking to kill sin in your life? to put it to death through confession, 1 John 1, 9 confession. We did a whole series on that verse to help us to identify sin and to come with God with genuineness and sincerity of heart, to bring it out of darkness into the light of his presence, that he might forgive it, that he might cleanse us of it and transform us into the image of his son. God disciplines those that he loves to awaken their zeal. That's what I believe is going on in this passage. These strange 2,300 days that are recorded, just over six years, I think they end in 161 BC. You can debate me on that. 
Um, I'm open to that, but I think they end as the Book of One Maccabees ends with the death of a Seleucid general called Nicanor, which results in a festival called Hanukkah being set up, the festival of light, and the beginning of a seventh year rest for the people of God. Rest from war, but rest from being kind of assimilated, Greekified as well. It's interesting that the angel Gabriel in verse 26 describes the vision that Daniel is given as a vision of evenings and mornings. See, there's this evening death destruction theme and also a morning new life hope theme that's running throughout the Bible, but also in this chapter in verse 18. Daniel sort of dies, he falls asleep and he's brought back to, to life. It's summed up well in Psalm 30 verse 5. The weeping may last for a night. Joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Hallelujah. All of this, of course, is a picture of the ways that God works, that there's a death, there's a darkness. You know, there's the death of Jesus on the cross. And then there's the light, the hope, the joy of the resurrection transforming that darkness. That's a bit of a picture of what's going on. There are three, the first half of the 2300 days, three dark years under Antiochus Epiphanes, where the temple lampstand has been put out. So God raises up, though, in that time, a priest and his sons who are angry at the compromise of the people of God. One son in particular, Judas Maccabees, God's hammer, starts to have power to defeat these generals, to destroy them. They recapture the, the temple of God. They relight the lampstand. It's glorious. They have three dark years and three years of progressive breakthroughs. The light is transforming the darkness. When Antiochus Epiphanes finds out about this, he's suddenly taken ill and he dies. <laughs> this, is, this is an extraordinary moment of God's control and his victory. You see, these antichrists, like Antiochus Epiphanes, they will come and they will keep coming until Jesus Christ returns. You see that in the Herods that come, you know, the bloodbath in Bethlehem, their killing of children and their killing of even their own family members to hold on to power, their corruption of the true faith. You see it in the Romans coming, AD 70, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We've seen it in recent history with Hitler and with Stalin. My point is, Times of compromise will always be with us. There'll be this test of compromise. Do you want to just do what they did under Antiochus Epiphanes? And many, most just compromised. They allowed themselves to be Greekified or Hellenized to that culture, to the Gentile culture. There'll be times of compromise, trials of compromise and trials of persecution and suffering for those who don't compromise but here's the hope the hope comes like this firstly that you can trust that God is working for good that you cannot see in this time in the world around you but also in you in those times and that God raises up deliverers for the people of God that he brings an end to it <laughs> He'll bring a, a King Cyrus to destroy you know, Belshazzar and to release the people back into the promised land. He'll raise up an Alexander then to deal with the Persians when they get out of control and, and so on. And he'll raise up people within the Christian world, the church community, great deliverers. 
But I tell you, it all culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer. And he, because of God's control of the Persians, allowing the people back, Jesus comes and he's able to stand in the temple precincts. And he speaks words which are now recorded to us, thanks to the Greeks in Koine Greek that's been translated. He speaks these words. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Not just a light, but the definite article light. Not just a light for the Jews, for Jerusalem, but for the whole world and for whom, whoever, whoever believes. No one's disqualified. No one is excluded. Wow. Jesus comes. God comes and he experiences ultimate darkness on the cross, separated from God the Father as the curse, the judgment of sin goes on him. Your sin, your wrongdoing, not on yourself. Jesus pays for it all if you'll trust him so that if you do, you can experience his resurrection victory over sin, the light of his glory coming in and taking residence up inside you. God is so in control. He's in control at this moment right now. He's the reason why you're listening. And he's inviting you. Jesus is inviting you, saying, please, please, will you let me into all the darkness, the darkness of sin, all the darkness in your life. He wants to transform it to make it radiant with the light of his life and his love for you. So I encourage you to trust him, to simply surrender to him, to believe upon him. And wow. That will be the best decision that you will ever make in your life. I tell you, all of heaven will be rejoicing. And we'd love to know too. <laughs> so if, if you want to do that, fill in the form, let us know. If you're not quite there yet, but you need a bit more help, fill in the form, let us know below. Details are there. We'd love to help you. But for the rest of you, this is a moment of renewed trust in God. There are a lot of similarities between Job and Daniel. Job had all sorts of questions about his suffering and the difficulties he was going through. So God actually comes and he answers them with 77 of his own questions. Where were you when I made the foundation of the world? And they're all designed to help Job. Though he doesn't get answers or an explanation for his specific suffering, he gets the ultimate answer. God is sovereign over creation making everything he's awesome he's the great god hey daniel final words of this chapter i don't understand it so if you ever find you <laughs> difficulties in reading scripture that's okay daniel great daniel didn't didn't fully understand it he didn't get all the answers he was hoping for but i tell you he got a vision that served him to keep going Job saw the sovereign power of God in creation. Daniel sees the sovereign organising of God through history. And it's a jaw-dropping moment of revelation that allows him just to rest and to keep going. So you don't get to understand everything. Sometimes God's word, his sermons, can be awkward, difficult to understand. 
burdensome even. One commentator says, yes, they're meant to be like that sometimes so that people would agonize of their details and then really own the truth. The truth would really go from their head to their heart in that way. I encourage you to agonize over this chapter, Daniel chapter 8, to really suck out its, its truth to you. And then I believe it really will help you to stand firm. It will help you to hold on to hope. It will help you to continue what you're doing, just to carry on with the ministry that God has put right in front of you, whatever that is. You know, being a mom or being a dad, being a worker, being a son, a father, all, all these different things. And just to carry on being faithful in that, this time with a bit more joy than discouragement because your perspective now has been lifted up. You can see higher and you can start to see more how or the part that you're playing in God's plans. By seeing, by trusting and then savouring the lengths God's love will go to, by seeing Jesus on the cross standing firm for your salvation, that will help you to stand firm for him in service, in service today. And I want to encourage you to make that service a key part or a key part of your service is part of Westminster Chapel. Part of our vision, our calling to bless everyone, to strengthen believers, to do the loving of one another and to raise up leaders, to encourage leaders to emerge, to take responsibility, to help us collectively and together to see hundreds of lives transform from darkness to light for the glory of Jesus. But I tell you, it doesn't come by a few people doing 110%. We've got way more than that, I know, but we need an army of people absolutely committed to this, not sitting on the sidelines, on the fringe, unsure, you know, letting the leaders audition until they think we're good enough to fight. No, I want to encourage you, despite our imperfections, to say, yes, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be all in, that we might see God do something truly, truly amazing in our lifetime for his glory. Let me pray. God, I thank you that though I am a sinner, you have cleansed me. Lord, forgive me for all the ways that I fail as a leader, for all the times that I don't trust you rightly. And I pray, help me, Lord, to see and take hold of this glorious future that's ahead. I pray, help us as a church to take hold of this, not to live with an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one, to be transfixed by your coming and to seek to work, to see hundreds of lives saved and lifted up, to seek to see spheres of society transformed and impacted, to seek to see the church, to, to love the church more than we've ever loved this church, this beautiful bride of yours before, Lord God, and to play our part in making her glorious, Lord God. So help us to see, help us, God, to trust, help us to savour the beautiful, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.